Hello, I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, host of Politically Pastoral Conversations, where we interrogate faith, politics, and society with a flair through conversations with people from all walks of life. Please help support this great effort to raise voices that you've heard before, but raise new voices. As again, we try to interrogate faith, politics, and society. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you have something profound to say? Then let Anchor lift your voice. Podcasts are a great way to share your experiences, interests, insights, and knowledge while gaining a following. You could use that following to grow a business, rally people around a cause, or to entertain people. There's no reason not to start a podcast. Either way, let Anchor be the platform that lifts your voice today. Hello, I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, and you're listening to the Politically Pastoral Conversations podcast, where we'll interrogate faith, politics, and society through conversations with people from all walks of life about nearly every subject. I'm a black, gay, ordained United Church of Christ minister and social justice warrior, so many topics will be drawn from those wells. Today, this inaugural episode introduces you to Illinois LGBTQ plus activist and former publisher Buff Carmichael. Carmichael will share snapshots of his life that take us from his Texas upbringing to finding love and creating change in Illinois. Now let's meet Buff. My parents uh, had a baby girl that died at birth, and then they had three baby girls after that. And uh, then I was born. uh, My sisters were seven, 14, and 16 when I was born. So uh, my family was much older than than most parents, and uh, um, I uh, by the time I was four, two of my sisters had left home, uh, and um, then uh, so I was really sort of raised as an only child. I mean, um, my father was fifty three years old when I was born. My mother was 38, and uh, uh, my youngest sister got married when I was 11. My father died when I was 11. And uh, so from 11 on, it was my mother and me. And uh, uh, we were 
we had we put on airs of being well off when we weren't. Uh, we never were told we were poor, but we, in looking back, we certainly were. Uh, my father had uh, built his dream house and he didn't have the money to keep it up. And uh, uh, he had sold off the property around it for GI tract homes after World War II. And those quickly became slum. And so uh, we had the mansion on the hill in the middle of the slum district, but uh, um, it was, uh, you know, we were better than our neighbors. We didn't associate with people low life like us. And I was raised in a very uh, prejudiced, racist, uh, elitist uh, way. And um, people I went to school with thought I was uh, arrogant and, uh, and, I treated others like I was better than them, I think. Um, I, I grew up really associating with the kids across town who lived in better neighborhoods than I lived in. And uh, my mother did her best to keep me able financially to go in those circles. And uh, that's, that, that's sort of my early life. So where were you, where were you born and raised? Waco, Texas. So, um, how do you think that that upbringing affected you? Oh, my goodness, it's affected me. My parents wouldn't let me play with the kid down the street because his parents were divorced. We didn't associate with divorced people. My parents wouldn't let me play with the little kid behind me because his family was Catholics and we didn't associate with Catholics. And, uh, we, uh, yeah, um, the, the things I was taught and being the good little boy I was, I absorbed it all. I took it all in. And it was only after I left home and went off to school that I started associating with people that were different than me and found out they were people. And um, I think a, a rebellious nature came out of that um, when I found out that, that um, a person's uh, marital status or their religion or their uh, race or whatever was not inherent to their goodness. That uh, I started sort of changing and various things. I, I was raised with a philosophy of a peaceful subservience. Don't rock the boat. If, if things aren't the way you like them, hang on and just follow your leaders. And I, I broke from that and found out that that I could rock the boat and I liked rocking the boat. So uh, so I, I, I did a, in the first 30 years of my life, I went from one extreme to another as far as political positions and uh, uh, positions on social status and racism and things like that, so. So as far as rocking the boot as a child, uh, when, when did you when did you start that, and how did you start that? Well, every church in my neighborhood had a vacation Bible school, and uh, that was a chance for my mother to get me out of the house. <laughs> I was, uh, I think, I was five years old when uh, 
I questioned the uh, Ten Commandments was being taught at a Methodist church. Uh, and uh, they came to Thou Shalt Not Kill. And we had been discussing a death penalty that was being conducted in Texas at that time. And I said, well, what about this? You know, And they says, well, that's all right to kill them. They're bad people. And uh, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says thou shalt not kill. And uh, so I, I maintain that I've been opposed to the death penalty since I was five. And uh, in a state where 85% of all people approve of the death penalty. So um, I think I, I rocked the boat when I was in mortuary college. The, uh, I was in charge of selling ads to people for the yearbook to people who had bought ads previously. And I was calling on the advertisers in the previous yearbook and the coffee shop where we all went on our breaks uh, had always run a quarter page ad. And I went and asked the manager, the new manager, and uh, if he was ready to renew his ad. And he said that he felt like he pretty much had the business from the mortuary college and and he didn't think that was there was a risk of losing it and he didn't want an ad. And so I went back and put a note on the bulletin board that Brink's Coffee Shop has decided that our business is sewed up and they don't need an ad in our yearbook. And uh, I think we should show them otherwise. And a few days later, he came to the college to see if it was too late to buy an ad. And he bought a full page ad. <laughs> so uh, I found out that, you know, sometimes I can do something that make a dent in and yeah, I can I can rock the boat sometimes and and sometimes there's a good reason to. What led to growing up to then to mortuary school? Hmm. As a teenager I got fascinated with cremation and I asked my minister what my church's philosophy was on it. They don't have one. <laughs> um, and uh, I talked to a funeral director about it and he filled me in a lot of brochures and pamphlets and and started talking to me about funeral service in general and why he was in funeral service. And I was, I, I found it fascinating. And I talked to my minister about feeling that I was being called to something and I didn't know what. And his first assumption, oh, you're going to be a minister then. No, I had never ever felt like I was a minister. I, I, I felt that I was being called to something and it wasn't ministry. And, uh, and as I, look more and more at funeral service. I saw it as a, as a, a form of ministry. Um, and um, I pursued it. And even though I was only in the service field for 12 years, but uh, I maintained my license for quite a few years after that. And um, I, I think every day I'm applying lessons I learned in that 12 years. Uh, I mean, you know, the, uh, it was, a, it was a preparation, I think, the Holy Spirit's preparation for me to be in other things later on in life that I would apply those lessons. So um, I, I, I don't regret my time in funeral service at all. I love funeral service. What lessons did you learn? Um, I met, a, I went to a seminar in Chicago and uh, met a funeral director who owned nine funeral homes in retirement communities in Florida. And he, uh, he would, he didn't direct funerals. He didn't embalm bodies. He drove from location to location to make sure his employees were working. 
and um, he had a business card that he hid in places around the various buildings and in the cars and everything so that the fam so that the employees would find the cards when they were, were not expecting to and um, the card said we may have five funerals today but this family is only having one and if every waitress in every restaurant would learn that she may be serving 100 tables today but i'm only going to be in there once and she's only got one opportunity to to serve me you can apply that lesson to any career you go into that that the person you're with right now is the one that's important and how did those lessons and, and that experience uh of course in 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 reading about uh about you and um obviously your involvement in the uh aids crisis and and particularly in in your effort to lift up uh your friend i believe it was, it was steve i believe his name was uh, you mean my partner jerry well, there was a there was a story I, I recall um, initially when uh, there was a gentleman. I think it was Steve Morrell. Oh, Steve Morrell, yeah, right. He had been he'd been given he'd not been really he he, he said he'd been given three lines or, or a paragraph, and he felt like he needed more right, yeah, uh, yeah, more right. attention, etc., because of right. everything he he had done mm -hmm. as an activist, and so. Um, I guess as as you got more involved in in the AIDS crisis, what did those lessons? Uh, how did those lessons help you as you went through? That that people are important. Um, I remember every now and then when we were serving any old family in funeral home, they would want a televised obituary on the evening news, and I called the news the tv station and try to give them an obituary and they would say oh we only Im carry important uh, obituary notices for important people i don't think i've ever met a person who wasn't important and um i got to where i said i would say well he was a very important member of his community or he was a very important part of his family uh and sometimes I would succeed, most times I would fail. But my point was that this family wants that on the TV station when they see the news tonight. And I don't see a reason why they shouldn't have it. But uh, most time the TV station didn't agree with that. That kind of brings us to, you know, the, the uh, inception of, of the Prairie Flame and I guess really speak to what I know at this time, it was kind of you and Jerry's idea. Uh, <laughs> it was so, actually. So it was what, actually, what in, inspired that? Well, Jerry was actually sort of a, an unwilling <laughs> participant. He, uh, he, he sort of got trapped in it. Uh, we had uh, started, we had been working with the uh, Illinois Gay and Lesbian Task Force which was sort of an early forerunner to equality, what's now Equality Illinois. And um, we were trying to have local meetings and events and activities, political forums, anything we could come up with to keep people involved and active. 
and we'd stop by the bar on our way home at night, dead tired after going to an activity where six people showed up. And we'd sit there at the bar and hear people talk about there's nothing to do in Springfield. And we knew that we had just been somewhere where we'd been busy doing something and there was plenty to do in Springfield. So how do you get the word to those people that there is something to do? And uh, I tried various people who were well qualified to start a newspaper, but they were also educated enough. They knew how much work was involved. And they said, oh no, <laughs> no way. And um, finally, uh, well, we did, uh, Patrick Dikowska started a TV program on the little uh, public access channel that ran once a month and at a weird hour that was, you nearly had to set your recorder to record it and play it later. And it, it, it did some good, but not a lot. And we needed something that you could put in people's hands and they could hold. And, and um, so finally with Steve Morell's death, and with Barnes and Noble putting a display in their show window for uh, uh, Pride Month and seeing letters to the editor in the mainline press condemning Barnes and Noble for doing that, um, I, I said, this is the time we've got to do it. We've just got to get something in print. And so we threw together uh, after Steve died in May and the display in June, we came out with an August issue in late July. And uh, that was where Prairie Flame was born. Um, uh, Steve Morell may not have been important to the news editorial desk, but he had been a, a uh, a hard worker and a diligent activist in the AIDS community. And uh, when I first met him, he looked like he was on death's doorstep. And then the cocktails came out and he was just thriving. He was just doing extremely well. And he uh, went to help his father move and uh, had a heart attack and died just quite suddenly. Um, and uh, and, and he got as much obituary as anybody else gets. But from my perspective, he was much too important to get at that. So what does it mean to you to realize the impact that, that the proof flame had? You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of times I beat myself up because it didn't have enough impact. Um, I mentioned the people sitting on the bar stools. They're sitting on those same bar stools today. Uh, they, you know, I went to so many events where people go, well, how do you help, hear what, uh, what's going on? And I just take a berry flame and lay it in their lap. So that's how you find out. And uh, um, I ran across people that had been in the community that never picked up a paper. Um, so a lot of it was futility, but uh, I look back and think, well, we did accomplish some good things. And uh, we put the word out on, on events that were coming at, up. And I always, people, one of the complaints I heard about Prairie Flame was we never ran enough pictures. And I said, well, 
you know, it's hard to get a picture of something that hasn't happened. And I tried always to publicize events before the event, rather than spending space telling people what did happen, what they missed. And so um, it, we didn't run very many pictures. There wasn't much to run pictures of. So what would it mean to you to know that while you feel like it, was, uh, it wasn't successful because you, you didn't get people off uh, bar stools, but there, were, there was at least one gay boy in downstate Illinois who saw the prairie flame as right. a, a symbol of affirmation that there are other people that are like he was, which is, and I, and I, to be frank, I'm talking about myself. I mean, I, for okay. me, that was the, um, I remember going to Chicago on trips and I would see Windy City Times. And so that was, that was like a thing, but then, right. but to finally get to, uh, back in my neck of the woods when I'd come back home uh, to see it there. It was like a, yeah, yeah. Like there's other people like me. Or I, I, I can learn about other people like me. I've got a fictitious friend. I don't know who he is or where he is, but I've referred to the boy that sacks groceries at the IGA in, in Litchfield. And the impact because of Prairie Flame, he was able to, uh, avoid suicide. And because of Prairie Flame, he was able to protect himself from AIDS. And, uh, and he was able to come to terms with his sexuality and present himself as a, as a productive member of society. And, and yes, I did pat myself on the back for, for that sack boy at, at the IGA in Litchfield. And whether there is an IGA in Litchfield, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, it, it just sort of, that's the persona I, I told a lot of people during that era about uh, what, what we were doing. And, uh, and, and I felt it was important to do that. So. Well, I only shopped at a Muhammad in, in uh, uh, an IGA in Muhammad. So I can, okay. <laughs> can uh, tell you about that. So uh, just to let you know that it was uh, important to my development as a as a gay man, so thank well, you. I, I appreciate that very very much. That that gives me a lot of validity. I appreciate that. And also, even to the point that I uh, ventured on to be a journalist too. I mean, uh, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so in, in multiple ways, it, it was a right, right. interest. But um, so having having said that, I think. One of the other things uh, that obviously is the most important part part of your life is the journey that you went on with Jerry. And so kind of, how did that start? Well, um, when I lived in Dallas, I was a member of MCC, or Metropolitan Community Church. And um, I moved to Decatur and there was not one. And um, I didn't have a car. And uh, I was able to borrow a car one weekend and decided to uh, come over to Springfield to attend the MCC worship service, which they met on Sunday nights in those days. And uh, so a, a couple I met at MCC 
told me they always went to the bar after church and for land dancing. And so I went along with them for land dancing and Jerry was sitting there having a beer and I uh, sort of caught him looking me over. And so I went over and bought him a beer and uh, that was the, the end, end of uh, the road for me as far as uh, finding a partner and, and find somebody that, that I could cherish and could, could put up with me. <laughs> and that was so, what year? That was 1990, September 20th, 1992. And uh, I moved in with him in January. And uh, uh, we were together almost 25 years. So, And we got married on our 22nd anniversary. So how would you describe Jerry? We have had so much fun talking about the Jerryisms. Um, Jerry and I picked at each other without mercy. Uh, we we did all sorts of uh, we we practiced a lot of uh, friendly insults and uh, stuff like that. Um, Jerry had uh, never been an activist, and he knew everybody in town, but he had never been involved with any of the organizations. And when I went to get involved with the organizations, he knew who to contact on every one of them, and he. He had all of the resources. He just had never done it. So actually, I, I drug him around with, with my interest in being involved. And so, uh, and the more involved he got, the more he wanted to be involved. And uh, he was uh, always trying to come up with a, a better scheme to have uh, potluck dinners and, and social events and stuff like that. He was much more social than political, and I was more political than social. So uh, uh, he was known as the uh, crockpot queen. Uh, anything he cooked was in a crockpot. And uh, after he died, I noticed I had nine crockpots. Uh, and uh, in fact, the couple that took me to the bar with them, where I met Jerry, uh, after he died, they uh, picked up a crockpot and filled it with flowers and put it on his grave. And uh, it it got on Facebook, and everybody was commenting about how appropriate it was to have a crockpot sitting on his grave. So since then, even though we've gone through several different crockpots, I've, I've keep a crockpot of flowers out there. It, I had to pick it up last a uh, couple of weeks ago because it's cleanup time at the cemetery, and they throw everything away if I don't pick it up. So uh, I picked it up, and a friend of mine just brought it back to me today. Uh, she took it home with her and cleaned it up and, and freshened the flowers up in it and everything. So uh, next weekend, I'll take it back out there again. So we all had a lot of fun with him overall. He was, um, we were coming back from a vacation in Tennessee and we had just eaten a meal in uh, uh, Paducah, Kentucky and crossed the border into Illinois and got on I-57, and there was a sign that said, um, exit here, road closed ahead. And I looked at him and I was pulling a camping trailer, and he's, and I says, reckon we better exit? And he says, they're not gonna close down an interstate highway with all these trucks on it. And so we went on by the exit. And then later we came to another exit, and sign said, exit here, road closed ahead. And I looked at him and he, no, they're not gonna close the interstate highway with this. All these trucks are on it. 
And then we went over a hill and saw 40 miles of backed up cars and trucks. And we sat there in the heat and the sun. We had two dogs in the car and then the air conditioner caused it to overheat because we wasn't rolling. And we had to roll the windows down and, and sit there and wait and wait. Finally, we got off interstate at uh, Johnston, Illinois, I believe it is, or something, uh, Johnston City, I believe it is. And we took back roads through and wound up, we were on our way home. We thought we'd be home that night. And we wound up camping the night at a, a, a state park there. And uh, uh, then came home the next day. But uh, that's, uh, from then on, uh, every time he said, I never make mistakes, I said, no, and they don't. They don't close interstate highways when there's trucks on them either. And so he never lived that down. He, uh, but uh, he, was, he was a lot of fun for me. I enjoyed being around him. Uh, he, uh, he would pick at me, I'd pick at him. And we just had a good time. What do you think you learned from him? I learned that, well, I learned you don't change people. You don't make the person into who you want them to be. You learn to love the person you love as they are. Uh, right after we got together, he was mad at his grandparents for something. I don't remember what. They wasn't doing something the way he thought they should. And he just wasn't going to talk to them anymore. And I told him, I said, you know, they're 80 years old. They're old people. You're not going to change them. You, you love them. You just love them the way they are. That's and from then on, I was eating those words because every time I turned around, I was had, you know, to love him the way he was. And and that's how love works. You don't you don't make the person into the person you want them to be. You love the person they are. And uh, and I had in an attempt to teach him a lesson, I wound up teaching myself one. So are there memories that you carry with you in particular that, that you cling to, you miss them most? I've, uh, I'm sitting here right next to my back door and uh, I've got a storm door that hates people. Uh, it, I've, I've got so many cuts and bruises and stuff on me where trying to get in through it and, and it, it, it reaches out and bites you. It just, it, uh, it, it hates people. And uh, usually he would unlock the, the door while I was holding the storm door open because it, it was just so vicious. And every time I come home and I have to get myself in through that storm door and unlock the, the key lock and, and all, I, that's when, yes, I miss him. Um, he, uh, he always wanted me to go to the grocery store with him. I never understood why except uh, he had a coupon that said we got $5 off if he bought $50 worth. So he wanted to buy $51.50 worth and get out of there. And uh, so uh, I would carry the calculator and he would buy the groceries. Well, I don't buy groceries the way he did. And, uh, but when I get home and have to make six trips to the car to bring stuff in, heck, I said I miss him. And, um, uh, but I miss having him here to talk to. And even if we talked about nothing in particular, um, it was somebody to talk to. Um, I've got this wonderful back porch that looks out. I'm a block off of a major thoroughfare. 
And um, so we can sit on the back porch and look out across the street uh, at the uh, street activity that's going on, bus stop and a little store over there and all, service station was there, it's closed now. But anyway, um, there's always stuff. And we'd sit out on the back porch. Uh, some I remember several times that we would wake up in the middle of the night and go out and sit out on the porch and, until we got sleepy again and go back to bed. And, um, we were sitting out there one morning about four o'clock when uh, some kind of drug deal went bad and, and uh, wound up being some uh, people injured in, a, in what was not an accident. And um, we wound up talking to the police about it all because we saw most of what happened. Although there, the main part of what happened was there was a bush between us and the event. So we were speculating partially, but uh, we had a lot of information on it. And uh, so we wound up being involved in that as far as uh, giving information to the police. So, uh, so um, and no one that you're, you're facing this, this health challenge and uh, and then also continuing to, to Miss Jerry, how, um, how has, have you found a way to, how are you finding ways to, to cope with, with all of that? I'm, um, the only thing I'm really coping with is, is the various symptoms that I'm facing. Um, uh, if Jerry were here, he would probably be absolutely insisting that I go through all sorts of nightmarish uh, treatments and, and efforts to continue living, and I've made the decision not to do that. Um, and uh, I don't think his presence or lack thereof is influencing that a great deal other than the fact that he would be probably opposing me in the decisions I've made but uh, uh, I'm uh, I have three conditions that are potentially terminal and one of them can readily and easily be fixed and uh, one of them can be they think maybe could be fixed but it would take years of, of uh, treatment and um, and then the follow-up after the treatment would be just as bad as the treatment. And, uh, and the third one is the COPD. There's nothing they can do about that. And I think, why am I going to go through all of this misery and still be alone and still be old and still be miserable after going through the misery? Why not I just... And so what I've decided to do is not have any treatment at all. And I've entered into a hospice program. And uh, the, uh, the purpose is keep the rest of my life comfortable and, and um, live what, do the things I can do and not worry about the rest. So. And I guess to go back to your, uh, your training, mortuary training, and how is that helping you how has that kind of helped you through these moments too? I, th I think I have a different attitude about death 
than most people. Um, I, I don't understand. I've, I've always had problems with the people who love Jesus will go to extraordinarily terrible efforts to avoid meeting him. If you love him so much, run toward him, you know? And that has never made any sense to me. Um, I have no concern about dying. I'm comfortable with dying. That's, that's just a part of, of, of creation. And um, uh, I firmly believe in an, in an afterlife and I'm satisfied that I'm in good shape for that. Um, the only problem, I, I absolutely uh, love funeral service and I love the concept of the traditional funeral. And during this COVID time, it concerns me that I might not be able to have the funeral that I would like to have. Um, and uh, that's just reality. There's nothing I can do about it. So uh, not something to worry about. Well, it's, I found it, it's interesting. You, you talk, obviously, being uh, a Christian who is, uh, embraces the faith tradition fully. How did that um, happen come out and, and, and living in a world that, uh, where the church hasn't been as nice to, to gay people as it should? Um, That's how did how did you bring yourself to to seek out a church? So, like you said, you you, you I mean, found Cathedral Hope, and then or was it right. Cathedral Pope then? And then and then came well, to, it became to Cathedral of Hope after or after my involvement, actually. But uh, um, the um, I was raised in Southern Baptist Church, and uh, my Southern Baptist training had me believing that I could not be gay. There was no way I could be gay. It was absolutely forbidden. And uh, I resisted my sexuality for many years uh, based on my Southern Baptist beliefs. And it was only after I finally came to terms with my sexuality and uh, reading uh, uh, Loving Someone Gay, uh, a book that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and Troy Perry's uh, The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay um, were the things that led me to the belief that I had spent many years praying for God to change me. And I finally reached the conclusion, either I have to believe God can't change me, or I have to believe that God can change me and doesn't want to. And I finally decided that, that God created me the way I was supposed to be, and God would not condemn me for being what he created me to be. And that led me on a journey from one church to another to another until I 
found the right combination and and have uh, uh, in fact I have a very good relationship with oh, probably six to eight churches here in Springfield that um, we have we have two Jewish temples that are very uh, affirming. We have uh, I'm currently involved with the Unitarian Universalist Church and uh, but MCC, I have a lot of friends at MCC. I have a lot of friends at the Church of the Brethren. Um, there's just a wealth of, I, I had a really nice conversation a couple of years ago with the pastor of the local uh, uh, United Church of Christ and his attitude toward the gay community. After the March on Springfield, uh, well, before the March on Springfield, we tried to identify churches where we could send speakers the Sunday before the march on Tuesday, not, uh, 2013. I called around a bunch of churches trying to schedule someone to speak very briefly on a Sunday morning about getting people involved in that. And of the churches that are traditionally black, I could find zero that would let us send a speaker in. None, none whatsoever. I even talked to a minister who told me, he says, Buff, I could let you bring someone in and speak. And before the person was finished speaking, the committee would be planning my firing. He says, I can't do that. And uh, I, I talked to uh, several people afterwards about how sad it is that a person of color who wants to worship in a traditionally black church can't unless they had their sexuality. And um, uh, a local minister named Reverend Wes McNeese uh, talked to me at length and uh, told me that it was uh, an issue he was struggling with as well. And he wound up leaving his church. I won't say that I, I, I probably contributed a little bit to his decision, but I wasn't the main reason, but he eventually left his church and, and has set up a, a new church because he couldn't get his church to agree to uh, the, the need to be open and affirming for the LGBT community. Was this a UCC church or another not denomination? Um, it was uh, the uh, Anderson, Indiana, uh, it's it's sort of a Pentecostal movement out of Anderson, Indiana, and Anderson, Indiana is part of the name of the denomination that he left, and what he's setting up is a non-denominational, non-traditional, uh, inclusive group that uh, I know uh, several of the Baha'i people are attending, and uh, uh, he's meeting on a Thursday night at Presbyterian Church, um, and um, Wonderful man, extremely good speaker, uh, a, a beautiful person, and uh, he would he would probably make an excellent person for you to interview someday. So, for those kids, uh, young people, uh, young adults, even and some adults that are still scared to walk through a church, even though there are churches that are making strides towards being more welcoming, what would you say to them if they were questioning but want to go to church but are still concerned? 
you know, before I go to a new doctor, I call and ask if if the doctor is willing to see a gay man. If he's not, I'll go somewhere else. And I, I see when I moved to Decatur, I made a phone call to the Unitarian Church there because I knew there wasn't an MCC. And I called and says, uh, I've just moved to Decatur. And uh, most places, the Unitarian Church is open to gay people. And I just want to make sure that you are before I come there. And they assured me they were. and. I started going there. Um, I, I did talk to one boy that was raised Catholic, and he said that he hated the church because of all the things the church had done to him. I said, there's other churches. Oh no, there's not another church. There's only that church. And no, there's lots of churches out there. And I would say if if the church can be 99% wrong, they're 1% right. There's something good to be said about every church, and there's probably enough you could probably come up with something against any church, but uh, you can you can shop around. There's there's bargains out there. <laughs> so I guess my my last question: When you reflect on your yourself as an eleven year old or younger, and then reflect on your life now, what what kind of feelings does that bring up for you to to see kind of your your oh, journey so far? What a roller coaster. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm nowhere near the little boy my parents raised. Uh, I'm I'm very different. I remember one time my mother asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I was an adult by then, and I had heard about uh, Reverend Malcolm Boyd wrote a book of uh, prayers called uh, uh, "Are You Running with Me, Jesus?" And I had heard him on a talk show, and I wanted the book. And I told my mother I wanted that book, and she bought it for me. And she read it, and oh, she was very unhappy that I was about that book. But one of the prayers was, uh, "Is Jesus with me in a gay bar?" And uh, uh, and my mother just thought it was terrible that I would even be willing to read a prayer written by someone who had that kind of attitude. And so uh, uh, she died before I came out. I, I didn't. I didn't ever face that with her, and certainly not my father either. And uh, I don't think it would have been a pretty sight if I had. So um, I was in a conversation about taking down some statues of slave owners and stuff, and I was sort of saying, you know, I'm a very different person than I was 40 years, 50 years ago. And I sure hope people don't judge me by who I was then. Look at who I am now. And we were talking about George Washington owned slaves. Well, yeah, most aristocrats of that era did. And uh, would he, if he were alive today, would he want to? Own? That's a bit different question. And so um, I look back at my life and I see a lot of things that I wish had not happened. And uh, they did, and I don't, uh, I can't do anything about that. Um, I, I hope I'm portraying a, a better person today than I was then. Well, I can, I can attest from my standpoint, you are. And I, I thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for joining us on the first step of a hopefully long journey. I hope Buff's story and insights inspire you. 
Our next episode will introduce you to black gay civil rights icon and angelic troublemaker Baird Rustin through the eyes of his partner, Walter Nagel. I'm proud to serve as the founding executive director of the Baird Rustin Liberation Initiative, an intersectional advocacy organization with a special focus on same-gender loving, LGBTQ plus people of color and people of color. Please join us for the next episode. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.